And the simple answer is eat fiber because fiber is one of the key components of glycemic index foods that are higher in fiber, like whole foods, vegetables, fruits, whole grains, complex carbohydrates are going to have a lower glycemic index or glycemic load than those that are low in fiber. Welcome to Longevity by Design, a podcast designed to give individuals access to the leading scientific information in the field of longevity. The ability to add years to your life and life to your years needs no opinion. Join us as we ask science to take the wheel. In each episode, Dr. Gil Blander joins a co-host and an industry expert in the field of longevity, shining a light and getting the answers to the key question, how can we live a longer, healthier life? Hello, I'm Ashley Reaver, and I'm joined by Dr. Gil Blander. Welcome to Longevity by Design, How to Live a Longer, Healthier Life. We're produced by Insight Tracker, your science-based guide to optimizing your body from the inside out. Our guest today is Dr. Jennifer Lovejoy. Welcome back, Dr. Lovejoy. Jennifer was a recent guest on the podcast (laughs) where we discussed hormone health, women's health, menopause, and metabolic health. We enjoyed this conversation so much, so we invited her back to dive into metabolic health, focusing specifically on insulin, insulin resistance, and glucose regulation. We'll cover the science behind glucose spikes, discuss misconceptions about insulin and insulin resistance, and also unpack glucose regulation and the development of prediabetes and diabetes. Thanks so much for joining us again, and I would love to kind of start a bit more broadly just talking about insulin and glucose to kind of set the stage for this combo that we're going to have today. Can you explain what a glucose spike is and describe what happens after a meal, as well as maybe what a healthy glucose response after a meal is and, you know, opposite of that, what an unhealthy glucose response would be? Sure. Yes. So, so stepping back maybe even a little bit further. So glucose and insulin, let's just make sure that that we're all on the same page with that. So when we eat food, any food, it gets converted into glucose. Some foods get converted faster, like refined carbohydrates get refer- converted very quickly into glucose. Other foods, proteins, fats, more complex carbohydrates take longer. But glucose is the fuel. It's a sugar that actually helps to fuel the body and fuel the cells. So it's important. It's what makes cells run and cells be happy. But obviously, balance is critical. Insulin is the hormone that is produced by the pancreas that helps to regulate blood sugar or blood glucose. So after you eat a meal, the blood sugar starts to go up because the food is being metabolized and turned into glucose. Insulin gets released and that helps to push the glucose into the cells to lower the blood sugar back down to the level, you know, to a baseline level. So so that's sort of the process. So what is a glucose spike? Well, it's basically that increase in glucose that happens after you eat a meal that eventually is taken care of by the insulin that your your pancreas secretes. So when we talk about healthy and unhealthy, we really are thinking about the the level. So as somebody is moving towards prediabetes or diabetes, which is which are both conditions of excess blood glucose, those spikes after the meal tend to get higher and higher and take longer to come down. So you're in a longer state of higher blood sugar, which is what causes the the problems for the the body that we know are associated with with diabetes. I know we're also going to be talking about insulin resistance, so I might as well just lay the the groundwork here for, for that. So what insulin resistance means is 
when that insulin, which your pancreas is producing, becomes less effective at moving the glucose out of the bloodstream and into the cells, that's what we call insulin resistance and how we measure it. So clearly, if you're insulin resistant, it's going to take longer to get that sugar into the cell out of the blood and, and be you know, more likely to move you towards a pre-diabetic or diabetic state. So uh, Jennifer, if we are looking at two different people and they, they eat the same kind of food, should we expect the glucose spike to be exactly the same or they might have a different uh, kind of spike? Yep. So definitely the spike will not be exactly the same. Depending on the food, the, the spike will be similar. So, you know, as I was mentioning, and I know we're going to get into this maybe a bit later, that some foods like sugars and refined carbohydrates in everyone are going to cause a larger glucose spike than, than other foods like proteins and fats. But there is a huge difference between people, and that can be a, a factor in what contributes in an individual to that excess glucose level. Okay, thank you. And maybe, uh, I, I know that you discussed it a, a few minutes ago, but uh, it's, it's interesting, I think, that it's important for our audience to understand the processes that uh, insulin is impact and uh, maybe explaining why it's make the uh, insulin resistant and then diabetes. What is the, that if you're looking at the process, it's not something that happened in a day, it's a long process. So what happened uh, in the process until you become a diabetic? Sure. So in thinking about the processes that, that insulin is involved in actually is, is very broad. And I think that's something that is important for people to understand. We think about it in terms of blood sugar regulation, and that's certainly it's a major function of insulin. But it's also involved in bone growth. It impacts the vascular system. It really has effects. It impacts the brain. So, so lots of other parts of the body are impacted by insulin levels and by insulin resistance. And so it can have broad effects. What happens over time, or at least what's believed to happen over time with, with diabetes, because I think the, there's still open questions about the process, is that when you have these repeated excess glucose spikes after a meal, when you have obesity, which is a major driver of insulin resistance, which causes chronic inflammation and other changes in, in various hormones in the body, that contributes to insulin resistance. Over time, the insulin level, because the insulin is working hard to push the glucose into the cells, the insulin levels start to rise. That means the pancreas has to be putting out more and more and more insulin to get the same effect because of the resistance. And the belief is that at, over time, and, it, and it's going to vary how long that time is from individual to individual, that the pancreas just becomes exhausted. And so it is unable to produce enough insulin to keep up with the spikes in glucose, to keep up with the overall higher glucose level. And that's when prediabetes or diabetes begins to develop. And the spikes in glucose, something that I feel like I see all the time is, you know, people wearing CGM saying, don't eat this food because it spikes your glucose. But it's normal. I feel like that's an important thing to point out also. But at what point right. kind of does it become not normal or unhealthy and how long maybe would those unhealthy levels take really to develop? Of course, there's a lot of factors, but it's like that's an important thing to put out there. Sure. No, that, that, that's really a great point because you actually don't want your glucose to stay flat after a meal. That, that's not a good thing. The, the point is not to just completely avoid having an increase in glucose. The point is to have a, you know, 
And, and again, there's not like a concrete number other than the diagnosis cutoff for diabetes of where you want it to be. But you want, you know, a relatively modest spike and you want it to be back to your baseline, certainly within, say, an hour after the meal. So that's what you're looking for on, you know, if you are, are wearing a CGM. And I also will I always throw out the caveat with CGMs that, that CGMs only give you a snapshot into one aspect of your biology. It's possible that you can be eating something that, that doesn't drive glucose spikes and you're feeling good about that, but you're actually giving yourself cardiovascular disease. So, um, you know, you, you've got to look at the body as a system. It's complicated. You've got to look at all of these factors to understand what's what's really going on. But but yeah, it's not that glucose spikes are inherently bad. It's only that over time, it, you you want to keep them, you know, so that your glucose isn't high for hours and hours after a meal. And that you're not spiking up, say, into the diabetic range, which would be like over 200 milligrams per deciliter glucose. Yeah. And uh, I would like uh, Jennifer to double click on what you said, because it's uh, so important that uh, the glucose or the CGM data, the continuous glucose monitoring data is one aspect out of uh, a lot of different markers. And it's uh, I, I like to give the analogy of uh, you are looking at the room from the keyhole. And so you're seeing a very small portion of the room, but you don't see all the room. So a CGM is great and uh, we really like it. I'm sure that it's a, a great uh, improvement and progress, but we need to be sure that uh, to understand that it's only part of the pictures and uh, you need to look at the uh, uh, breadth of biomarkers and understand what is going on there. Absolutely. Yeah. Like what you said, your glucose might not be spiking, but you're giving yourself heart disease. <laughs> that doesn't mean that food is what? good. And I feel like yeah. when you see a you know, 15 minute clip or 15 seconds, that's what my glucose didn't right. go up. Okay, but <laughs> exactly. And, you know, it's important to keep in mind that what when, when people do develop diabetes, their biggest risk, what, what causes the mortality and early death in diabetes is typically heart disease. So it, it is that, you know, the vascular effects of diabetes, it's not the blood sugar per se. So it's really important in people who have some glucose dysregulation that they are really taking good care of their heart and their vessels. And, you know, so that's not necessarily what you're going to see on a CGM. You can eat 100% fat and it's not going to spike your CGM, but it's going to be causing your vessels to constrict and become stiff and maybe get atherosclerosis. So, you know, again, that's that system's view of let's, let's look at the whole thing and with nutrition in particular and what it's doing to all aspects of your overall health. Awesome. Great point. So let's say someone does have some of this insulin or glucose dysregulation, sensing something's off with insulin. Our first clue would maybe be prediabetes and then developing into diabetes. So how prevalent are prediabetes and diabetes in, in the United States? Sure. Prediabetes is actually the really alarming number. And most of the estimates say that about a third of Americans have prediabetes. So one in three, somewhere between 35 and 38 percent, which is a huge, huge number when you consider the, the significant percentage of those will progress to type 2 diabetes if, if nothing is done to counteract that. Now, the rates of diabetes itself, and, and that includes different types of diabetes. That's another important point here is that there are different types of diabetes. Mostly what we're talking here with insulin and insulin resistance is going to be type 2 diabetes, what used to be called adult onset, but it unfortunately is now occurring earlier and earlier in life. There's also type 1, which is insulin deficient diabetes, and that is often a, a childhood onset type diabetes. So 
Overall, the prevalence of diabetes in the United States is around 11%, so call it one in 10. But it's important to note that that's really different by population. So people over 65, for example, it's about 29%. So we're getting close to that one third number of individuals over 65 who have diabetes. There's also a lot of ethnic difference, almost a two to one. The highest rates are in Native American and Alaska Natives, and uh, that is about 14%. And the lowest rates are actually in non-Hispanic whites at about 7%. So you know, the, the overall global number doesn't tell you necessarily as much as looking at some of these subgroups and how frequently it occurs in those subgroups. Yeah. And uh, one, uh, one comment about what you said is uh, uh, it's very important to, re uh, to remember that diabetes is like aging-related disease. So as you said, the uh, young population, is, uh, the prevalence is much uh, lower than the older population. It become more and more prevalent with the age. So like most of the disease that we know today, diabetes is the aging-related disease. So it's, uh, it's very important to remember that. Yeah. And Ashley, you, you wanted to say something. Oh, I was going to say about prediabetes, if people necessarily aren't aware of it, what's the difference between prediabetes and full-blown type 2 diabetes? Yeah, it's really just the difference in the level of the glucose in the blood. So a, a normal level is less than 100 milligrams per deciliter. Prediabetes is between 100 and 125. And by the time you get to 126 or above for fasting, that's going to be a, a diagnosis of diabetes. So it's, it's really a continuum. It's just the glucose is starting to go up and there's you can use hemoglobin A1C cutoffs as well. So that's really the difference. But you, it, it's not like there's a hard and fast line. It's more like a progression and a continuum of elevated glucose levels. And importantly, to underscore, most people don't know. If they don't measure their glucose levels or their hemoglobin A1C1 levels, they're, they're not going to know that they have prediabetes. And in fact, many people with type 2 diabetes are also undiagnosed. That's a pretty large population as well. So, so knowing your blood levels of these things is really quite important. And uh, Jennifer, you, you raise a very good point. And uh, I'm not sure that everyone uh, from our audience understand what is A1C. So can you describe that? Sure. So one of the markers of, of diabetes is something called hemoglobin A1C. It is a measure that actually does relate to the hemoglobin in your red blood cells. And it is a it's a good marker because it's, in, it's kind of an integrated marker of what your blood sugar has looked like over the last three months. So rather than just taking a spot level of, you know, I'm checking it this morning and then I'm going to check it tomorrow and maybe my glucose is very different on those two days because of eating or exercise or something, this really tells you overall how is your body handling glucose. So when the hemoglobin A1C starts to go up, you know that that's not just a short-term I went to a party last night and, and had a little bit too much. And so my fasting glucose is high. It really is saying, no, this is a trend and you're, and you're going to capture this. And that's something that can be looked at every three months. Excellent. Thank you so much. And the next question is, uh, uh, we see that uh, the prevalence of diabetes, as you discussed before, is going uh, higher and higher uh, 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 with uh, time. So like 50 years ago, we had much less uh, diabetic than today. As you said, uh, in the past, uh, diabetes was uh, a disease only for the elderly. Now you see more and more younger people that have diabetes. So do you have an assumption why is it happening and why do we have so many diabetic now? 
Yeah, I think it's really very clear that this is related to obesity and excess weight. The tracking the increased prevalence of overweight and obesity precedes the increase in type 2 diabetes very clearly and very directly. And because we know mechanistically that obesity tends to cause insulin resistance, it makes sense that that's what's going on. So that that is really the primary driver. Now, of course, you can get into the the secondary layer of, well, what's driving that obesity epidemic? And, and that is a very complicated question. But obviously, it also, you know, that condition is also increasing. So it's not genetics because our genetics have not changed in the last 50 years or 100 years. It is something about our environment and our behavior and things that we're doing. Yeah, yeah. And I'll go even one step further and I will say it's a lot about our nutrition and what what are we feeding our body and the lack of exercise. But anyway, that's uh, for a, a different uh, a discussion. So let's assume that uh, one of our uh, audience uh, is uh, uh, worried about uh, the fact that he might have uh, pre-diabetes or uh, diabetes and he haven't done a, a blood test. What are the other signs that... Uh, might sig signal to you that you might have uh, diabetes or might have prediabetes. Sure. So with prediabetes, unfortunately, the problem is there typically are not any symptoms. People will feel completely fine. They'll feel normal. The only thing that we sometimes see in, in relation to insulin resistance is that people get a, a darkening of the skin, particularly around the neck, the armpits. But that doesn't consistently happen. That is a sign of insulin resistance, but not everybody will get that. That's more common even in darker skinned people. So, so often you have prediabetes, you won't know without doing the blood test. Now, with the onset of actual you know, development of diagnostic diabetes, that's when the, the more, you know, kind of many people I think know the symptoms, you're going to have excessive thirst, you're going to have fatigue, you're going to be going to the bathroom all the time. Those are things that said your, your body is really in trouble and needs to get that glucose under control. But people can go for many, many years in the prediabetes state before ever crossing into that work place where they have symptoms. So tracking really is, is important because you don't, of course, don't want to wait <laughs> until you move into the diabetes state if you can avoid it, because then it becomes harder to, to manage and harder to treat. You'll want to catch this when it's at the prediabetes stage. But pivoting a little bit away from the relationship between insulin and diabetes, you know, we know there's a pretty clear relationship there, but it's not so commonly understood the relationship between insulin and cognition, as you touched on before. Can you talk a little bit about that relationship between insulin and cognitive function, at least what we're learning about it? Right. Now, it's actually very clear that insulin resistance is a, and higher levels of insulin are a risk factor for worsened cognition and, and even Alzheimer's and dementia. And so conditions that are associated with insulin resistance, like obesity, like type 2 diabetes, the frequency of mild cognitive impairment and dementia is, is higher than in healthier populations. But even within a sensibly healthy population, the greater degree of insulin resistance is associated with impairments in, in cognition, basically what, what some people might call foggy thinking. So, so there is definitely a relationship of chronic high insulin and insulin resistance negatively with cognition. But it's worth noting that the acute increase in insulin, such as after you eat a meal, actually improves cognition. So I think a lot of people may have had the experience if you're if you're really hungry, you know, your blood sugar is dropping, your insulin is low and you're trying to work on a difficult mental project, 
you just like, oh, I just can't do this. You go get yourself some kind of a snack, get your blood sugar up, get your insulin up. That actually is good for cognition, but it's, it's really that chronic over time level of, of insulin being high and insulin resistance that, that is problematic for cognition. And well, yeah. And as you said, I think that connection between Alzheimer's disease and insulin, it's also really interesting. Yeah. And, you know, and yeah. I, I'm, well, I was just going to say, I think it's actually under-recognized, as you say, not, not just that there's a link, but when people have diabetes, and please, it's not well-controlled diabetes, the, the risk of dementia is significant. And so if, if you have a loved one who has had diabetes for a long time and, you know, maybe is starting to show some signs of cognitive impairment, it's really important to get that checked out as soon as you can, because diabetes is pretty rough on the brain. Yeah. And especially that the, the brain is the major uh, consumer of uh, glucose. I think right. that uh, uh, when you are uh, not exercising, it might be that 40% of your glucose is going to your brain. Think about mm -hmm. it. It's a, a, a small organ that uh, consumes right. uh, almost <laughs> half of the amount of uh, glucose that your uh, body uh, makes. So, and it's very sensitive. It's very sensitive for that. So it's uh, absolutely uh, makes yeah. sense. Um, so, Jennifer, speaking uh, of which about the uh, brain and uh, also about uh, diabetes as, uh, uh, let's say, uh, aging-related diseases, um, I'm sure that you know that there is a lot of connection between uh, the insulin pathway and longevity uh, uh, experiment that have been done in, uh, uh, in worms that show worms. A, 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 a nice uh, lifespan extension. So do you want to discuss it a bit and uh, give uh, our audience some additional evidence, maybe why uh, insulin is important uh, uh, for longevity? Yeah, well, as you say, the, the initial research on this was done in, in worms, and it's, it's absolutely fascinating. I remember earlier in my career, I met the, the woman who had initially discovered that and, and went on to become pretty famous for the connection between insulin and insulin-like growth or insulin growth factor and how that all ties to longevity. But now it's been shown in, you know, mice, rats, a number of species and humans that there is a relationship between insulin and, and longevity. So I think the, the exact mechanisms of that, other than that we know it does impact a number of hormones, including growth hormone and other things that are tied to longevity, is still being worked out, but it's thought to be one of the reasons why caloric restriction, which we know is a longevity promoting intervention, is effective because, of course, when you are restricting calories, you're lowering your, your insulin levels since you're lowering your glucose level and the, the input there. And so that may be one of the reasons why caloric restriction is, is effective. So I know there are researchers that are looking, since nobody really loves the idea of being severely caloric restricted for their entire lives <laughs> to improve things. You know, is there a way we can actually work with the insulin system instead to, to sort of mimic the effects of caloric restriction while still allowing people to live their lives? So I know that's, that's a really important focus of research right now. Yeah, and I assume that the lady that you mentioned is uh, Cynthia Kenyon, Cynthia from, Kenyon. Uh, yeah. yes, from UCSF. And yeah, um, uh, that was a real uh, seminal uh, paper that uh, uh, made me very happy in the 90s. So it's happened so long ago, more than uh, 30 years ago. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, they showed the lifespan extension of almost 100%, which is uh, really amazing. Uh, You're yeah. aware. 
Yeah, in worms, yeah. Um, but as you said, later on, on the other uh, model organism. So uh, speaking of, of which, uh, another interesting uh, uh, protein uh, that, uh, uh, that is related to insulin is uh, insulin growth factor one or IGF-1. Um, can you a bit elaborate of why this uh, uh, protein is, uh, might be important for uh, aging and longevity in uh, humans? Well, of course, IGF-1 was, was really the protein that Cynthia Kenyon honed in on and other researchers in terms of longevity. Um, its role in humans is, is kind of outside of my area, and so I have not really followed that as closely as, as some of the insulin resistance story, but I, I know it is central to this whole picture. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, by the way, I really appreciate uh, your... Uh, Okay, uh, 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 the way that you are saying, if, if I don't know, I, I, I won't say it. And that's great. That's a show that you are a, a great scientist. So thank you for that. During our last episode, we talked about some of the common misconceptions related to diabetes and insulin resistance. People thinking that it's solely driven by eating too many carbohydrates or too many or too much sugar. And you talked yep. about how dietary fats also contribute to insulin resistance, which is something that really is not commonly discussed. So we're hoping to go a little deeper on this. And can you explain the misconception to help us kind of unpack it and just talk about over time how that dietary fat contributes more to insulin resistance than carbs or sugar alone? Sure. Well, I'll go back to what I said in the very beginning, which is that all foods get converted to glucose. So, so one of the common misconceptions is that it's only carbohydrates that get converted to glucose, and that's why carbohydrates are bad. And, and that's not true, although they do get converted at, at a different rate, as I said. So the, yeah, the research, it's so interesting because I guess one of the benefits of a, a certain degree of longevity in a career anyway is that you see the trends over time. And so when I was a graduate student and, you know, earlier in my career, everything was all about the low fat aspect of, of nutrition and research. And so we were doing all this research on the, the challenges with high fat diets, which are real and are there. But then came this big backlash in the you know late 90s, early 2000s that has continued to today against low-fat diets and promoting the low-carb diets. And, and I think to some extent, the, the baby got thrown out with the bathwater. So we absolutely know that when people were trying to follow a low-fat diet to lose weight or to control diabetes, and instead they were eating a whole bunch of sugary cookies that didn't have any fat in them, that that is not the right thing to do. And so <laughs> that didn't work. But at the same time, there are, are dozens of studies, many dozens of studies that have shown in multiple populations that when people eat high-fat diets, particularly high-saturated fat diets, that it produces insulin resistance, even in the absence of weight gain. So we know that, that eating high-fat diets actually do contribute to insulin resistance. And I think where it gets confusing to people is when you think about that, you know, we talked about the glucose spike. So it's true that the glucose spike that happens after eating carbohydrate is higher in general than after eating fat. And so that leads people to think, oh, it's the carbohydrates that are bad and, you know, fat is good from that, from a glucose standpoint. But what happens over time, because that fat, if you're eating a lot of it, is causing insulin resistance, it means your absolute level throughout 24 hours, not just your spikes, but 24 hours, your insulin is increasing, your glucose is increasing, and 
And that's where the problem lies. So I think too many times it's been emphasized, oh, it's just about the spike. It's just about the spike. Well, it's not. It's about what's happening 24 hours a day, seven days a week while you sleep, while you exercise, while you're resting. And so those are the things that you want to think about as well. But but the research on the role of dietary fat and insulin resistance is, is very solid. I mean, some of it is from my lab, but a lot of it is not. You know, there were many independent groups that showed that high fat diets and mostly high saturated fat diets were associated with insulin resistance. Yeah, and I think that it's taking us back to the uh, notion that you cannot look at the room from the keyhole and only look at uh, the glucose as a specific uh, second. That's uh, the first one. And the second one is that uh, there are a lot of gurus outside that come and say, oh, high-fat diet is the best or uh, uh, high-carbohydrate is is the best. And, And at the end of the day, each of us is unique and you need to feed the right diet for you based on what's happening inside your body. So I think that uh, those two notions are uh, uh, very important for our audience to understand. There is not one solution fit all, and uh, we are unique. Um, And uh, I want to maybe uh, 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 zoom into the point that you raised before uh, about fat, and I I I cannot agree with you more. So is it a difference between unsaturated fat versus a a saturated fat on the effect on the level of the uh, glucose uh, uh, spike? No, it's it's really not the because both unsaturated and saturated fat fat have identical effects on glucose, and that's been been shown in in research. So so it's not so much you know fat is fat in in that regard. It's more what the saturated fat is doing to the liver, what it's doing to adipose cells, how it's impacting muscle. So the, those organs of the body that are responsive to insulin and responsive to glucose, that is what tends to drive the the insulin resistance. So, so yeah, you're not going to see a glucose spike with, with either unsaturated or saturated fat, but saturated fat will be impacting your insulin resistance negatively over time. Yeah. So, um, very interesting and a very good point. Um, so, um, the, the next question that I want to ask is about the gly, glycemic index or the glycemic load. And the, mm-hmm. there is a lot of uh, uh, discussion about that. I'm uh, in this field, I know, 15, 20 years, and uh, uh, some are saying that it, it is important. Some are saying that is, it is not important. So maybe let, let's start talking about that. And uh, I would love to hear your opinion about the uh, glycemic uh, uh, index. Sure. Well, let me let me throw out a few definitions first, just for for maybe the, the few people out there who, who aren't familiar with this. So this does go back quite a ways in nutrition research. The the glycemic index is is essentially a number between zero and a hundred that ranks a carbohydrate containing food in, in terms of its effect on blood sugar relative to a pure sugar solution. So if you have a pure sugar solution, they call that a glycemic index of a hundred. And then they look at all these individual foods in the lab and they say, okay, you're going to eat a potato. That's going to cause this amount of blood sugar rise and they're going to give it a number relative to it. So all of that research was done and that categorized it. And, and that's helpful because it does tell you the effects of these foods on, on blood sugar. But what was quickly realized is that to some extent, that's not a real world thing. For example, foods like carrots have a very high glycemic index when you look at them in isolation like that. But most people, when they eat carrots in the real world, are not going to eat enough of them to actually raise their blood sugar at all. And so glycemic load comes along to say, okay, it's a combination of what's the glycemic index of the pure food and 
how much are you actually going to eat? What's a serving size? How much carbohydrate is in that serving size? So glycemic load is probably a more useful real world tool to use. But even then, it's a challenge because most of us don't just eat single foods. I mean, maybe for a snack or something, you're going to have a single food, but most of us are eating mixed meals, mixed foods. And so it's not really clean. And research has looked to see whether, well, if we take you know, a mixed meal that has, and we know the glycemic load of the individual things and we add it up, does it work? And it doesn't. So it, it's always inaccurate. It often tends to overestimate the glycemic load of, of the meal. So I think the reason that people have strayed away from it where they have, not because it's wrong or not because there aren't many, many studies that show that it does make a difference. Eating low glycemic low load or low glycemic index food reduces your risk of diabetes. It reduces your risk of cardiovascular disease. It lowers BMI. So there's lots and lots of evidence around it, but it's a really complicated concept. And so I think a lot of the nutritionists and the diabetologists got together and said, look, there's a simpler way to do this rather than having people have to sit and calculate the glycemic load of everything that they're eating to figure this out. And the simple answer is eat fiber because fiber is one of the key components of glycemic index foods that are higher in fiber, like whole foods, vegetables, fruits, whole grains, complex carbohydrates are going to have a lower glycemic index or glycemic load than those that are low in fiber. So we come back to the processed food discussion. I know we talked about this a little bit on our last episode, but but it's really so important because when you are eating a lot of processed and refined foods, they are high glycemic index. They are likely to be high glycemic load. And that's what's going to cause those big glyce, you know, glucose spikes. So focus on fiber, focus on water, focus on portion size. And those are things that are much simpler in terms of just practical reality for most people to do. And so at least in the United States, that's where the diabetes recommendations have gone. They have not talked specifically about glycemic index and glycemic load. Now, in some of the, I think the European guidelines actually do talk about glycemic index because, again, the research is very solid. But can people apply that in the real world or do we really just say, no, eat whole foods, eat complex carbs, stay away from the refined and processed stuff? It's a lot simpler message. Yeah. And then the. I know that uh, Ashley is a big advocate of uh, fiber, maybe the biggest advocate that I know, so I'm sure that uh, <laughs> Ashley uh, couldn't agree with you more. Uh, and another, uh, uh, let's say, a kind of intervention that is uh, have a lot of uh, popularity right now is uh, the keto diet, uh, especially for uh, insulin resistance and uh, diabetic. Uh, can you uh, discuss it a bit and give us your opinion about uh, this kind of diet? Yeah. The challenge with the research on ketogenic diets is that it, it's hard to interpret because most of the studies have been on ketogenic diets that also included weight loss. So when you're looking at insulin resistance, the, mo the single most impactful thing that you can do to improve your insulin resistance is lose weight. So what you really want to know if you're going to try to understand the effect of a ketogenic diet on insulin resistance is what happens to insulin resistance in the absence of weight loss. And there are very, very few of, of those studies that, that have looked at that. The studies are also really short term. One study that, that did try to control for the weight piece a bit found that there was a short-term benefit of keto diet on insulin resistance, but by a year that effect was was completely gone. So so I don't think the, the evidence is strong 
But again, it's, it's we just don't know because the studies have been done in a way that that are very confounded. Now, saying that, you know, I'm a huge fan of the gut microbiome and keeping our gut bugs as happy as we can. And so when I think of keto, the first thing I think of is you're killing your microbiome because you are removing fiber from the diet and you are not essentially giving your gut microbiome what it needs to be happy. And we know that the gut microbiome is incredibly important in the management of blood sugar, insulin resistance, weight gain, all of those things. So if nothing else, I think we could hypothesize that a ketogenic diet would not be good for insulin resistance or diabetes in the long term because of its effect on the gut microbiome. Now, the other thing, and I'll go back to take the big picture look, maybe you're seeing some short-term effects on glucose and insulin, but if you're eating a high fat, especially a high saturated fat diet, what you're doing to your blood vessels and your cardiovascular system, which is really where the problem of insulin resistance expresses clinically, is not going to be good. So I'm not a fan, but I can't point to a specific study that says, you know, we did this right and here's what we found. So it's still, I think, an emerging area. Yeah, and to add to what you said about the cardiovascular risk, uh, we, we've seen a lot of uh, insulin tracker users that uh, follow the keto diet, and we've seen a, a, a very significant increase in LDL and APOB and other, Absolutely. exactly as you said. Yeah. And uh, so that's the question, the, the risk versus the reward. I'm not sure I, I agree with you. Uh, on top of that, it's a diet that it's very, very hard to adhere to. Because, uh, uh, even when you eat an apple, you have sugar inside the apple. So you, you, yeah. you need to basically eat a lot of fat and a, a bit of lattice and that's it. So, so it's a very tough, uh, uh, I think that it's almost impossible for, let's say, a normal person to adhere for it for uh, a long term. So it's hard. And uh, as you said, there is no evidence. So I'm not yeah. sure that yeah. it's yeah. Well, and it's important. I think a lot of people don't realize if they're not in the science field, the ketogenic diet was originally developed to treat children with epilepsy. That's what it was for. So it, it people, you know, kids who were really, really sick and had no other way, this was back in the early 1900s, of managing their disease. This was a an extreme diet of putting the body in ketosis that was shown to have some benefit for, for these kids with epilepsy. So so we've taken something that was really sort of a last ditch effort in the absence of, at that time, any effective medication and said, oh yeah, let's use it for weight loss and diabetes and all these other things. Like being ketosis is not a really happy thing for the body. So yeah. it's hard. I, I, it's hard. It drives me crazy of people like, oh, I'm, you know, I do keto during the week and then I cheat on the weekends. I'm like, okay, well, it takes you three to five days to get back into it every single time you do that. And I think the muscle wasting that happens with that is just... Yep. No one talks well, about those things. Nutrient deficiencies as well. Again, if you're not eating, most of our micronutrients come from high fiber plants, high carbohydrate plants. And so if you're not eating those, yeah, you're in, unless you're really supplementing well, you're not going to get micronutrients and that's going to become a problem over time. As a Longevity by Design podcast listener, you understand the value of improving your health for today and for all the years ahead. And if you want to live your healthiest, longest life possible, you need to understand what's going on inside. At Inside Tracker, we take a personalized approach to health span optimization that eliminates guesswork from your wellness plan. Inside Tracker analyzes blood biomarker and DNA data, along with physiomarker data from fitness trackers like Aura Ring, 
to deliver personalized food, supplement, lifestyle, and exercise recommendations that allow you to take control and improve your health span. And for a limited time, Longevity by Design listeners can get 20% off at the Inside Tracker store. So if you're ready to receive a personal health analysis and data-driven wellness plan to optimize your body for the long haul, then it's time to start inside. Visit insidetracker.com slash podcast to get started today. That's insidetracker.com slash podcast to get started today. Yeah, one in, uh, uh, interesting, uh, I think the recent development uh, or recent uh, um, um, in, interesting, um, um, uh, the, the, I would say development is that uh, um, keto diet might be uh, helpful for some kind of cancer because uh, uh, the cancer cells are using a lot of uh, um, a glucose and then when you starve them, you might have, uh, see some effects. So I've seen some papers about that. I'm not sure that uh, the science is uh, there, uh, there to recommend every cancer, cancer patient to, to use that, but I think that's something interesting for anyone that they uh, might have a, a, a cancer to discuss it with their uh, physician and decide whether it's the right uh, intervention for them. Yeah, I've I've seen those papers as well, and it's you're right. It, it is an emerging area. I don't I don't think we know for sure, but but certainly something for someone to talk to their physician about. And quickly before we pivot off of that, just because we you've made so many good points in this, just again, most people's thoughts about diabetes are preventing those spikes, but eliminating the carbohydrates to reduce those spikes does not help the underlying reason why those spikes are as high as they are anyway. So don't go for the short-term treatments of the symptom. You really want to work on the underlying cause of those big spikes and elevations in glucose, that insulin resistance. Yep. Yeah. Um, and it, and it, yeah. I'm back to five and whole foods. I it's, it's it, you know, because, and I think now we have enough research that we know that whether it's a low-fat diet that is, a poor quality diet high in refined foods or whether it's a low carb diet that is poor in quality and high in in refined foods both of those have adverse effects whereas when you follow a low fat diet or a low and it's hard to do keto but you could do a low carb diet that actually is is good in high quality high fiber foods those both have beneficial effects so so it's less about it, it seems now that the consensus is starting to emerge it's less about the absolute ratio of the macronutrients of fat and carbs and more about the overall quality of the diet is it plant rich whole food high fiber and those are the things that are you know whichever your your preference is 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 probably going to work the best awesome during our last episode we also specifically talked about how women become more insulin resistant resistant after menopause. And there's always a lot of, I think, discussion of this in social circles because there's just not a ton of research that's done in that, you know, postmenopausal group anyways. But let's say, for example, that there is a postmenopausal woman listening to this podcast. She just found out that she has prediabetes. She's in super early stages of it. Maybe her A1C is just at that cutoff of 5.7%. And her fasting glucose is still within a normal or healthy range for her age, so less than 100. For a person in that, a woman in that situation, what would be the most important lifestyle interventions that perhaps you should or you could suggest? General, obviously, because we don't know everything that she's doing. But what are some great things that maybe she should start really focusing on? 
Well, the interesting thing about the lifestyle pillars, as I call them, are they all impact insulin resistance and, and glucose tolerance. So they're all important. So it, the answer really will be it depends. But where we would want to look at is certainly her diet. And we've talked a lot about diet and insulin resistance today so far. Exercise. Exercise is very important for reducing insulin resistance and for managing glucose. And so making sure that, that that's a component and sleep and stress are also both highly related to, to insulin resistance. And so, so the first question would really be, you know, if I was talking to this woman of, you know, let's, let's learn a bit more about those areas as well as things like, are you a smoker? I mean, just start with the very basics. Like if you're a smoker, that's sort of the first thing you really need to do because, I mean, we think about smoking and lung cancer and heart disease, but it's actually a really significant risk for type 2 diabetes. So so we've really got to look at all of those pillars. But let's say she's a non-smoker. Then it would be really exploring what does her lifestyle look like in terms of diet, exercise, stress, sleep. And based on the answers to those questions, it would be, okay, that's the priority. So it is very personalized. It is, it is going to be, it depends. But I would always look at those four areas plus toxin and, you know, smoking, alcohol type exposures to see what might be going on and where you would want to focus. Honestly, for most people, it's going to be diet, but there are some people, and we certainly saw this in, in Airedale, that their biggest deal was they were completely stressed and they were only sleeping four hours a night. Their diet was okay. They were getting some exercise, but it was that stress and sleep that was really the biggest health risk that they had. And so that was where we needed to, to work to get that back in balance. Yeah, it's so fascinating that uh, uh, we know that maybe 80% of uh, uh, the way to mitigate uh, uh, lifestyle-related diseases like uh, diabetes is a uh, lifestyle and uh, the yeah. genetic is so small. It's, it is amazing. Yeah, absolutely. But good. I mean, that, that's an empowering. I mean, we know behavior change is incredibly hard, so I'm, I'm not minimizing that. But to me, that's always an empowering message. That, you know, I can't just blame it on my genes and there's nothing I can do about it. This is actually a lot of it is in my control. Right. Focus on this long list of things within your control, not this one thing that you cannot. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And last time we also talked about weight gain that happens, you know, post-menopause. Menopause, um, yeah. And for, you know, menopausal women that, you know, they notice that maybe they're gaining more weight, but they haven't changed anything. And a natural tendency is to diet. And for most people, diet equals cut out carbs. That then kind of just fuels this cycle of continuing to increase that A1C. So I hope that all of the messaging you've already given today is a good reassurance yeah, well, not to do that. And, and actually that it, 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 you, you raise a really important point there that I should have mentioned that, you know, as I said, weight it, excess weight is the single most important predictor of prediabetes, insulin resistance. And so, you know, if someone has gained weight, trying to, to mitigate that, and again, not necessarily by, by doing something drastic, but by focusing on diet quality, by increasing exercise, by doing something, even losing 5% of, of weight is going to make a huge difference. And, and certainly, you know, in the case scenario that you described where someone is really just sort of on the edge, just beginning to move into prediabetes, a 5% weight loss, if they're overweight, would absolutely move them back into the normal range in almost every case. So, so weight loss is an important part of the picture if it's, if it's appropriate. I feel like most of our users probably do some sort of right. cardiovascular exercise pretty regularly. Is there, should yep. they swap timing of exercise or try and do different types of exercise? 
You know, I mean, I, you know, it always goes back to that, the FITT equation, right? For exercise, the frequency, intensity, time type. So if they're already exercising and they're still finding that they're, they're becoming pre-diabetic or that, that things are going in, in the wrong direction, you could certainly look at, at type. You could look at, at time. Can you add some, some duration or add a few more days to, to the number of times that you're, you're exercising per week? One of the things where there's been a lot of research in relation to glycemic control, blood sugar control, is, is exercising after a meal. And so it may be simply a matter of changing up when you exercise, not, not doing something that, you know, not, not really even changing what you're doing, but just changing the time of it so that you go for your, your walk or do your exercise, assuming it's not really vigorous exercise, after you eat. And that really helps to reduce those glucose spikes that happen after a meal. It was also a really interesting and happy for me study that came up last year that showed happy for me because I'm an afternoon exerciser. I have never been someone who can exercise in the morning. Like it, it just does not work for me. And so the study showed that people who exercise in the afternoon and evening, it actually has a better effect on glycemic control and, and insulin than people who exercise in the morning. I'm not telling you not to exercise in the morning if you're a morning exerciser because any exercise is good exercise and we know that. But for those of you who happen to be afternoon and evening exercisers, don't worry about it because I can't tell you how many people have told me, oh, you should really exercise in the morning. And now I can say, no, I can't look at this study. <laughs> so, so one uh, anecdote, uh, Jennifer, I spent uh, a day uh, earlier this week with a bariatric uh, surgeon. And um, I'm talking now about the weight loss and the, all of that. And uh, he said that the issue that in the future, uh, GLP-1 will be like, a, 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 like a, a wonder drug that will continue to use uh, a very similar to statin. Because uh, as you said, uh, the weight is a so high risk factor that uh, uh, we need to maintain it. And uh, a lot of us, unfortunately, it's hard for us to do it uh, with uh, cutting the, uh, the diet and increasing the exercise. What is your opinion about that? Yeah, increasingly, it, it's actually a very exciting time in the you know, obesity treatment research and diabetes treatment as well because of GLP-1s and some of the other newer drugs that have come along. I have talked to a number of experts who are saying that Yes, the whole standard of practice in diabetes and obesity is is changing and it will change dramatically to where we won't even be having these same conversations in, in three years because it's just going to be standard of care that you put someone who is, for someone with diabetes who is overweight or obese on a GLP-1. And now, I think we talked a little bit about last time, we still have not figured out what the long-term strategy is for managing GLP-1 use? Is it sort of a, an on-off use? Is it uh, because, you know, people will likely not be able to stay on it continuously, either for cost reasons and, and for it to become standard of care, clearly the cost is going to have to come down dramatically. So we know how that's, that's going to happen. But also because they will lose too much weight. And it's interesting because this is not a, a problem that I'm aware of with bariatric surgery. With, with bariatric surgery, people do tend, I mean, they may lose really large amounts of weight, but they will they'll stabilize typically at a, you know, kind of may, maybe not quite normal, you know, BMI or, you know, mild overweight or, or high normal BMI. People on GLP-1s in some cases just continue to lose weight down to dangerously low levels. And so you're going to have to get them off. And so 
I think that's what we really need to figure out before it's, it's very different than a statin where we know we can just give people a statin for decades. And as long as they tolerate it, okay, they're going to be fine. But I think lots to learn, but very exciting. And yes, I think the the sense I get is that really the field is just changing dramatically. And all we think about a standard of care in diabetes is going to be turned on its head in the next couple of years. Yeah. So so a couple of comments uh, about it. I, I agree with you first that uh, it might need to be on and off, but that's okay. So maybe we should take yeah. the model of uh, vitamin D. That uh, what That's what I'm doing for myself. I'm testing mm -hmm. uh, every quarter. And then if my vitamin D is uh, getting lower, I'm uh, supplementing. If it's high, I'm not supplementing. So it can mm -hmm. be the same here. It's easier because you see your weight. You just hope on your scale. Yeah. Um, so, and the second, I think that uh, more about the a social effect is, uh, I don't know, 20, 30% of the population in the U.S. is uh, obese. Think about all of those uh, poor people in a way that it's it's not their fault. It's uh, it's hard. It's, and now suddenly you gave them a wonder, you provide them a, a wonder drug that allowed them to uh, become in the even field with everyone, which is amazing. I agree with you about the cost, but I, I feel like the cost will go down. Very similarly to what happened with the uh, sequencing. So the first human genome cost billion dollars. Now I can sequence my uh, DNA in $200. So it's like, and then it will be like that. If uh, there is so much demand, the, the pharmaceutical company will find a way to, to make it cheaper. I agree with you. I, I think that it's a big, big uh, uh, revolution that uh, uh, the audience should be aware of. And uh, if uh, applicable for you, it might be a good uh, treatment for you. Absolutely. And, and I definitely want to reinforce that it's a terrible thing to have obesity and it is not your fault. And it is a, a very complex and difficult disease to treat. And we know that, that lifestyle treatment only does so much and, and for many people is, is hard to maintain. So, so GLP ones absolutely are a, a terrific option for people who are substantially overweight. Now, the other problem we're hearing is, you know, this has become the Hollywood drug. Somebody who wants to lose 10 pounds is, you know, going on a, a GLP-1 and, and that's making them not available for the people who really need them, including people with type 2 diabetes. So, you know, we, we got to kind of stay away from that mentality of, you know, everyone should be taking this, I think, but save it for people who really need it. Especially, as you said before, that we don't know what are the side effects of that because it's yeah. too short. Yep. Um, and I, I feel like it's similar at the early, not early, the middle uh, um, uh, COVID time when uh, uh, Pfizer and Moderna started to come with their uh, uh, vaccines. So uh, some people that were a bit closer to uh, to the source of uh, got the injection before the elderly. So it's the same here. I think that uh, everyone should be moral enough to come and say, okay, I need to lose five pounds. I can do it by myself. Leave it to the people that need to lose 50 pounds or the, the, the poor diabetic that need uh, uh, a treatment for his uh, 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 disease. Yeah, um, exactly. Do we know about dosage with those at all? You know, it seems like that weight loss is, it works too well for weight loss. And there has there, you know, there's lots of different forms of it, but a, pill that has a much, much smaller dosage versus an injection or something as a way to make it a little bit more sustainable. Sure. It's being worked on. Absolutely. Of course, the, the existing studies have looked at different doses. And so the doses that are available on the market now are the ones in their trials that got the, the best effect. But I know there is an oral formulation that is it's in phase three or just finished phase three. So, I mean, yeah, there's there definitely going to be some things coming out that are 
you know, different modes of administration, different doses that may also help get to the, the problem of, of too rapid and too extreme weight loss. And last time you talked a little bit about how the GLP-1s impact brain chemistry. Is there like, yeah. can you explain anything else about what the heck that means? <laughs> well, they, they're being researched as anti-addiction drugs. So what they've found is that they taking these medications actually is very helpful for people or lab rats addicted to methamphetamine, addicted to cocaine, addicted to alcohol. So, so they're working on basically on the reward system of the brain. Mm-hmm. Now, that may also be how they're having an influence in part. Now, it's not that the main mechanism, I think, in obesity, but it may help because food becomes less rewarding. And when I've talked to people, you know, patients who are taking this medication, they're like, yeah, I just don't have any interest in food. It doesn't, I feel full. I'm not interested in it. It's not rewarding. So that, that whole uh, what we call hedonic quality of eating, which is important for us as humans, I think, to an extent, if it's not overdone, is, you know, the, the GLP-1 seems to just sort of dampen that down. So, you know, with, with not knowing exactly the details of, of what's going on, I can say it, it does impact the reward system. That's why it's being studied for addiction. Actually, I saw a headline just a couple of days ago that was interesting that a woman who had, was taking it for weight loss found that, that she had some obsessive compulsive disorder behaviors. And that those behaviors completely stopped when she was on the drug. She wasn't even looking for, you know, that didn't even have that expectation. But so, so it is definitely acting on the brain and it seems to be acting particularly on addictive and compulsive behaviors, which again, is that whole reward dopamine system. So what happens when you take it away? Again, this is always my concern. It's like, oh my gosh, then, you know, if your, your dopamine system and other reward pathways have been impacted, how are you going to respond when you're not getting that? external drug anymore. We got to figure that out for people. Interesting. Lots to lots to observe coming up in the future with those. Yeah. And then we did something. Yeah. We did something a little bit different for this episode. We pulled our our inside dragger audience on social platforms to ask them what they wanted to hear us talk about. So these next questions came directly from our social followers. And something that, you know, we've touched on quite a bit related to insulin resistance already is that many people in our audience are really interested in calculating their HOMAIR value in hopes that it will help them understand their degree of insulin resistance. What is known or unknown about this? Is it really helpful? Can we use it as a diagnostic tool? Is it accurate? Yeah. No, it's it's a great question. And so... Coma IR is a, it's essentially an equation that has been determined based on research to relate to insulin resistance. And it uses your fasting glucose and your fasting insulin level. And we plug those numbers into this equation. And yes, you can calculate insulin resistance. It, you know, it's a research tool. It was never intended to be used as a a sort of an individual diagnostic tool. That being said, it, it gives you a number. And so, it, it, you can look at it now because it's not a diagnostic tool. The trick is you don't really have a normal range. Like, you know, if you, if you go to a, a clinical lab and you get your cholesterol measured, you come to Inside Tracker and you get, the, you know, something measured, you know exactly what the normal range is, what the high range is, what the low range is. Well, you know, we only have sort of population data to base that on for home IR because it's not a diagnostic, but it gives you some indication of, of what you're what your measure is. Now, the question is, is it better to do that or just look at a fasting insulin? Because the reality is your fasting insulin 
also gives you a really, really good indicator of your insulin resistance. And that's also been studied in many, many intervention as well as population studies. So I don't think there's any harm in calculating HOMA IR. It's fairly simple math. You can plug it in, but I don't know that it's really going to give you a better answer than your fasting insulin, which is actually does have a diagnostic range that we, we know. Thank you. Another uh, question that uh, our audience are interested in is uh, about the effective of uh, intermittent fasting on uh, preventing uh, insulin resistance. Yeah, well, intermittent fasting like, like keto is certainly the topic of the day. <laughs> it's whatever it's the topic of the day. And, and to some extent, the answer is really similar in that most of the studies that have looked at intermittent fasting have also been weight loss studies. So it's, it's very difficult to separate out the effect of intermittent fasting per se from the benefits of weight loss on, on insulin resistance. There's also all different kinds of intermittent fasting, right? And so the, the type that I, if, if I'm going to recommend any, I talk about prolonged overnight fasting. I think there, you know, rather than alternate day or some of these really extended fasting periods, I think there is a benefit of prolonged overnight fasting, but it doesn't have to be extreme. It doesn't have to be 16, 17 hours. I think if people can fast 12 to 14 hours overnight and just not, you know, give your body that break, that does help to manage glucose and insulin. And there are some studies that show that that has benefits, again, fairly short term though. So we don't know the, the long-term effects of it. So I think if people have prediabetes or, well, let me say that, if they have prediabetes, I'll start there. I think it's, it's perfectly safe and legitimate if they want to experiment with doing a 12 to 14 hour overnight fast and see if that makes a difference in their blood sugar, that, that's fine. Now, when you're dealing with someone who has a diagnosis of diabetes, you got to be a little bit more careful and it would be something you'd want to talk to your physician about to make sure that it's safe for you because depending on what medications you're taking, you might run a risk of getting too low blood sugar by doing any kind of fasting. So, you know, anyone with diabetes who's thinking about doing any kind of fasting, you know, you should talk to your physician about that because with some medications that can be problematic. And so, so I think, again, it's an open question. It has, has not been a lot of studies. The weight loss studies don't really show very much. And essentially, intermittent fasting produces the, the same amount of weight losses as a continued caloric restriction. So there, I think it's, it's what's easier for the person to follow. I think most people do okay with a 12 to 14 hour overnight fast. It doesn't interfere with your life too much. When you try to go longer than that, I, I think it kind of gets to your point earlier about keto, Ashley, that, you know, what if you want to go out to dinner? You know, so you have a business dinner and you have to go out to dinner at, at seven o'clock. Well, you know, there goes your, your 16, 17 hour fast, or, you know, you, you do that, you eat dinner until seven and then. The next morning, you can't eat until 10 or 11 o'clock. Well, most of the times you're going to end up just waiting till lunch because it's not convenient if you're, especially if you're working to, oh, I got to take my lunch break now at 1030. And that is a setup, as one of my colleagues said, that's how they get sumo wrestlers to gain so much weight is by having them skip breakfast and skip meals. So, so I think there, there's some, some question marks around this, but I don't discourage people who are, who are healthy or in the pre-diabetes range, if they want to experiment with a 12 to 14 hour prolonged overnight fast, go for it. Yeah. And uh, I just want to add that uh, we had a full episode on the, uh, on the intermittent fasting uh, uh, in the one of the earlier episodes and uh, all of them on the uh, humans and the, uh, um, I haven't seen uh, any uh, very strong uh, correlation about uh, having a long fast and the level of glucose. The yeah. 
as you said, main, it's mainly weight loss. And uh, actually, one of my relatives uh, called me a few weeks ago and said, hey, I'm doing intermittent fasting for uh, the last uh, few months, and I don't see any uh, uh, decrease in weight. And I told her, okay, have you changed your diet? Are you eating more calories during the window of, uh, of, uh, mm-hmm. uh, of the feeding? And she said, well, I might eat more. I said, okay, there is no magic here. It's calorie in, calorie out. So if, if well, you will uh, uh, concentrate the, uh, the same amount of calorie that you was, were supposed to eat, I don't know, in 15 hours, in six hours, you'll get... So, yeah. so I think that uh, 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 the audience need to understand that uh, intermittent fasting, I think that there is a lot of data from uh, the literature, mainly for model organism that is doing a lot of good uh, uh, effect on the body. There is a not, a, not a lot of uh, data in uh, a human yet. And yeah. the data from humans show weight loss and a bit effect of lipids, but not a lot about uh, glucose as much as I know. So, Yeah. No, I mean, it's an extremely good point. And I, I, the flip side of that, I recently had somebody tell me that like, oh, I'm doing intermittent fasting and I've lost 30 pounds. It's been absolutely amazing. And so, of course, I'm like, wow, that's, that's great. Congratulations, because weight loss is hard. I always say, hey, congratulations. And they said, yeah, and I'm also... You know, I've increased my step count to 20,000 steps a day and I eliminated alcohol and bread. <laughs> like, okay, well, it probably was not the intermittent fasting, but in their minds, you know, that's sort of the first thing. So again, I think we hear, you know, we humans tend to get just very focused in, in that sort of way. It's like, oh, it's the intermittent fasting. And when it may not be that, it may be all these other things that you're also doing, or like in the case that, that you said, Gil, it's, it's, yeah, I haven't really changed anything about my lifestyle. I'm just changing that around and nothing has happened to my weight. So, yeah. So, yeah, thank you for that. Another question from uh, uh, our audience is uh, about uh, what should be the uh, uh, the amount of carbohydrate that a, a diabetic or a pre-diabetic uh, uh, should consume? Should, we, should they, for example, eliminate all the carbohydrate that they uh, consumed before? Yeah, no, and I, I mean, I think we've we've covered this pretty well. Certainly, you shouldn't eliminate carbohydrates, and I think, especially with pre-diabetes, and my emphasis would be on on potentially even increasing the amount of complex carbohydrates, whole foods, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, eliminating refined carbohydrates. Absolutely. So you know, sugar white bread, white pasta, all that stuff, you know, but really shifting your diet over to the high fiber complex carbohydrates. And that is likely to actually help with with the management of diabetes, pre-diabetes. Now, again, with diabetes, there are specific nutritional guidelines that the American Diabetes Association puts out that that do discuss carbohydrates. And some of it again, depends on whether you're taking insulin or not taking insulin and how you manage that. So so that would be a conversation to have with a diabetes educator or nutritionist about exactly how many carbohydrates you should eat. But in general, completely eliminating carbohydrates, even, even if you really could, which is almost impossible, is, is unlikely to really be, be beneficial. And I think the focus, again, is quality more than quantity. Yeah, and another anecdote uh, related to this point is I remember uh, in our office at InstaTracker, we used to have a lot of uh, fruit and vegetable. And I remember that uh, some of the insult tracker team members uh, seen me eating a banana and say, oh, it's a lot of carbohydrate. And uh, it's well, so I told them, yeah, but there is a lot of uh, fiber inside that. And uh, yeah, uh, all, all food is, uh, is yeah. good. You, you should eat the carbohydrate. So I think that uh, everyone <laughs> needs to understand that 
if you want to eliminate something, eliminate everything that is in a packet that come from a, a factory, exactly. and, uh, eating an apple or banana or a tomato is, uh, should be good for you. Exactly. Very much so. You know, there's an interesting anecdote from the, the, the Pima Indians in Arizona have one of the highest rates of type 2 diabetes in the world. And one of the studies that was done a number of years ago, their, their ancestral diet, if you will, in northern Mexico and southern Arizona before colonization was extremely high carbohydrate, like 80% carbohydrate. They ate plants, they ate roots, they ate fiber, very little fat and very little protein. Well, of course, when they got put on a reservation, the government started sending them butter and cheese and, you know, they, they shifted to this very high fat diet, got diabetes, you know, again, this the super high rate of diabetes. So somebody actually did a study, a researcher looked comparing the diet of the Pimas in northern Mexico who were following the more typical ancestral high fiber diet, high carbohydrate diet, and the Pimas in Arizona and found that even if, if you shifted the Arizona Pimas to a higher carbohydrate, high fiber diet, their rates of insulin resistance and diabetes returned to a much more normal level. So, so even at those very, what we would think of, I mean, to us, 80% carbohydrate is a lot of carbohydrate, you know, but that was associated in this genetically very predisposed population with much less diabetes and much less insulin resistance. So yeah, carbohydrates of the right kind are not your enemy. I think you raise a really good point too for people that are diabetics and are on medication. Please do not just decide to cut out carbs and try keto without talking to your doctors because that could be incredibly dangerous for you. Yep. All right. Next question was about a craft test, which I've never even heard of before this. What is it? When would it be used? Is it something that you'd recommend? Yeah. So, so this is really interesting. This is probably something fairly new. What it is, is a, an oral glucose tolerance test. So let me step back and explain what that is. When, when they test for diabetes, sometimes, especially in the old days, when they tested for diabetes, you would come in and they still do this with pregnant women to test for gestational diabetes. You come in, you drink a really hideous sugar solution and they measure your glucose before you have the sugar solution, and then often just two hours after. Sometimes they also do a one-hour measure just to see what's happening, and that's and they can diagnose diabetes from that. The craft test adds it's that same pr procedure, but they add an insulin measure in addition to the glucose, and you know, so you they get your glucose and insulin. You drink this nasty glucose drink, and they look at that over time. So, so again, this is a research procedure that was developed to, to study the dynamics and the physiology of, of insulin response. It is not diagnostic. It is not intended really for, for general use. And frankly, it is not going to tell you anything more than you're going to get from the HOMA or, or really just a fasting insulin. So, so I would not recommend it. I did see that there's a number of companies out there now that are offering this at quite high prices. So I think save your money, <laughs> do a fasting insulin test, calculate your HOMA if you want to, but there's no need to do an oral glucose tolerance test and measure glucose and insulin just to figure out if you're insulin resistant or not. Uh, the next question is, uh, can uh, people res reverse type 2 diabetes uh, via lifestyle alone? It's a bit of a controversial question because it, it depends what you mean by reverse. There, there certainly are those experts out there who would say once you have diabetes, you always have diabetes, even if your blood sugar goes back to normal. I'm not sure I completely agree with that. But what I can say is that you can, in fact, even if you have type 2 diabetes, 
through lifestyle and, and really a lot through, through diet, get your blood sugar back into the normal range and keep it there. To me, that I call that reversal. Now, if you change your diet back to what it used to be, if you gain a lot of weight, are you going to go back to being diabetic? Of course, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you haven't reversed it. And I think that is sort of a nuanced argument that people make that you can't reverse it. So there is lots of data actually showing particularly that plant-based high fiber diets can reverse diabetes. And it's encouraging. Hard, hard to do, but it's doable. And one anecdote, and I think that it's actually not an anecdote, my uh, father-in-law has uh, diabetes and I uh, pushed him very hard to use a continuous glucose monitor. So he started to monitor it and he started to know what uh, food uh, spikes glucose and what is not. And his A1C uh, went down from 8 or 9 to around 5.5, which is uh, normal. And again, you can argue, is it easy or not? But uh, the, the bottom line is that he have less damages and hopefully won't have cardiovascular disease. So I think that uh, it is possible if you have more information, if you are educated enough and you are curious enough and you are trying to starting to do some experiment, even a, a diabetic can use that to start to understand and use the right tool and the new tools uh, that we discussed today. And uh, yeah, you can reverse it in a way that uh, you increase your risk to have uh, the uh, end uh, result of uh, diabetes. Absolutely. Yep. All right, let's see. What is the benefit of knowing both your hemoglobin A1C and your fasting insulin? Yeah, it's a good question. They're, they're obviously very related, as we've been talking about, but they do tell you somewhat different things. So again, you, your hemoglobin A1C is going to tell you on average over three months how, how your glucose level has been, which captures the spikes. It captures the 24 hours, like everything that's been going on with your glucose and and so is it in the pre-diabetes range, diabetes range, or normal range? So that's important to know in and of itself. What it's not necessarily going to tell you, at least not with any precision, is do you have insulin resistance? And that's what the fasting insulin is going to tell you. So so having both of these kind of goes together, it's like maybe you have an elevated fasting insulin, so you have some insulin resistance, but your hemoglobin A1C is normal. That's great. Now's the time to intervene, you know, reverse that insulin resistance so that the, your blood sugar stays in the normal range. Maybe they're both starting to creep up and you can still, you know, use, use lifestyle approaches and other approaches to manage that. So I do think they're both important measures. Would we see insulin increase before we would see hemoglobin A1C increase? Usually. And, and usually that's related to weight. It, I mean, it's it's possible that it goes the other way. If somebody is weight stable and they're having a lot of glucose spikes and you start to see hemoglobin A1C and that, that's kind of driving the insulin. But most typically what I see is the insulin precedes the hemoglobin A1C. Insulin resistance precedes diabetes. So A1C, there really is no point in testing any more frequently than three months. And and that's because, as I mentioned early on, this this is related to your red blood cells and red blood cells only turn over every three months. So so you're not going to start to see changes in things. I think clinically, they typically measure it every six months or even every year. But, you know, somewhere in that three to six month range for hemoglobin A1C is is probably fine, but not any less than three months. Fasting insulin, you could take the same approach. It will change more rapidly. I mean, if, if you make a dramatic change to your diet or exercise, you'll see a change in fasting insulin quite quickly. So if that's important to you, if that's going to be behaviorally reinforcing to say, you know, in, in a few weeks, I've really made a big difference, 
you know, there, there's no harm in doing it. But I think if you're just looking to track it over time and see how you're doing, probably around a three month ballpark every three months for that would be fine, too. All right. Last question from our social followers is, do you have any advice for how to eat for optimal insulin levels when training? So what should insulin levels be? If you're lifting weights, doing CrossFit, running, zone two cardio, anything like that? Yeah. It, it's a very good question. I don't know that we really know what the insulin levels per se should be for those. And I, I can only tell you an anecdote in terms of advice for eating. And this comes from someone that I worked with at Aravale, who was a competitive triathlete. And probably, I don't know, six to nine months before he came to Aravale, he had decided to go on a paleo diet because he had seen that a couple of the paleo triathletes that he knew were faster. And of course, when you're a triathlete, it's all about speed. You know, how, how can I add another few seconds to, to my race time and, you know, be more competitive? So he went paleo. And when he did his, so, so very fit guy, super healthy diet, exercised all the time, you know, did all the right things lifestyle wise, came in, was shocked to see that his numbers came back pre-diabetic. He was pre-diabetic and he was insulin resistant. And he's like, what? You know, what, like, what is going on here? I'm doing all this healthy stuff. Well, you know, found out he had basically eliminated carbohydrates. He was doing intensive, you know, literally like four or five hours a day of intense training for these triathlons. And his body simply was not getting enough carbohydrate to be able to maintain that. So, you know, with the help of a sports nutritionist who said, dude, you need to stop the paleo diet and you need to really get some good complex carbohydrates. He started adding, you know, some whole grains at every meal, uptake, increases uptake of fruits and vegetables. And within three months, his his prediabetes had reversed and he was continuing his his training level and he did actually get faster. So that was good, too. <laughs> but so, you know, I, I think it's going to be individual. I think absolutely work with a trainer, work with a sports nutritionist who can can monitor this for you. But certainly eliminating all carbohydrates and and trying to do especially in very intense training might have some adverse effects. I should say this individual also had a family history of diabetes, so that that may have upped his risk. But regardless, it shows the importance of nutrition, even in the presence of, of good physical activity and an otherwise healthy diet that is is so critical. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, Jennifer, as you know, from the last episode, we used to wrap up by uh, asking a question about a uh, what would you do for longevity? But we already asked you that question. So today we'd like to ask you your top uh, tip for maintaining healthy insulin level. So any uh, wisdom here? Yeah, I, I would have to say eat fiber. <laughs> eat high fiber foods. It is really the number one thing. You know, as you all know, Americans do not eat enough fiber, I don't even get close to enough fiber. If you look at indigenous populations, they're eating like 40, 50 grams a day. We're lucky if we squeak to 18 and we're supposed to be getting 30. So, so tracking fiber grams can actually be a very helpful thing to do for a little while. I'm, I'm, you know, not generally all that big in calorie tracking, fat tracking and all it can help some people, but it's tedious, but, you know, spend a couple of weeks tracking your fiber intake and it can be very enlightening. So that's, that's probably my top tip for improving your fasting insulin. Excellent. And I'm sure that, again, you made Ashley very happy because she's one <laughs> of the biggest advocates for a fiber. And another, and another anecdote is that uh, we are now in the late stage of developing a way that you can uh, scan your food uh, with your uh, iPhone camera and uh, 
then after a week, you will know exactly what is the wonderful out of macro and micronutrient that you have. It's a, it's a project that Ashley and myself working on in the last eight years or so, and uh, both of us are really uh, proud of. So uh, I'm happy to hear that uh, you agree with us that that is important, and uh, we will uh, discuss it in the future still uh, 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 under radar, let's say. Uh, but but uh, again, I want to... Uh, to summarize, and uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Lovejoy, for joining us again. It was a pleasure and uh, so much uh, knowledge and uh, great information and a very nice way to communicate it to our audience. It's not always easy to take a, a complex a scientific a subject and break it down to a, a level that uh, a, not a, a PhD in, a, a, in a nutrition or in a, a, a biology will understand. Um, so thank you for that. And uh, we, are, we look forward to exploring the research in the field of longevity each month with you and the other leading uh, scientists. For more information, please go to www.instatracker.com slash podcast. Again, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Longevity by Design. Please subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or YouTube. Longevity by Design is powered by Inside Tracker, a personalized health optimization platform that helps people improve their lives by improving their bodies from the inside out using personalized, science-backed recommendations for nutrition, supplements, and lifestyle changes. To learn more, visit InsideTracker.com/podcast.